The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. A few years after studying science, but beginning a career in cosmetics, lingerie and film, today's guest was reading a science journal for fun. A line about the properties of native bee-excreted nesting material caught her eye and made her wonder if it might make a good bioplastic. What for some might have been a quick muse for Veronica Howard-Stevenson became a mission and then a company. It's taken her across New Zealand and Australia to find specimens, had her duck venomous locals in bushfires in Australia, found collaborators and funding, and led her to identify and be working to commercialise the product under the name Humblebee. To chat the journey, inspiration, and making that into action, Veronica joins us now. Morena. Hello. Hey, so tell me about that early career, studying science, starting a company in, in lingerie, working in cosmetics and film. What led you to be reading that science journal? Uh, I look back at my CV and I'm like, what was I doing? It was a, a, an interesting um, path, but I left science because I knew that uh, I couldn't spend, I was far too social to be spending my 20s in a lab running um, repeat experiments. So uh, and I'd seen a gap in the market for lingerie targeting um, big busted women. And so I ventured north to Wellington where there was a bigger market for that. And then when I got there, the global financial crisis hit, GST got hiked and that became a completely non-viable business idea. And I ended up working in cosmetics, which was kind of soul destroying. And managed to kind of wangle my way into a film production company and loved loved that, but really missed science, and so was, you know, in the evening reading reading journal journal article, articles and and wanting to to stay connected to that world and the progression of of technology. And that's so interesting that you had that bug to want to be an entrepreneur and start a business. And and like, how was that journey through the lingerie company? Because New Zealand at one stage had a you know, fantastic lingerie industry, uh, Bendon and Burley, mm, Burley. Mm. I mean, they were huge names. Mm. And then it went from being a real centre of lingerie to nothing. Like now now you can't even get underwire made. Yeah, that's true. And we were going to be importing. And one of the things that, that made it non-viable was that I couldn't consolidate the orders. So I would have had to buy a certain amount from each specific brand, even though they came from the same warehouse. And that would have you know, the cash flow and the amount of uh, stock that I would have had to carry on hand was just prohibitive. And uh, it's actually being done now by um, 
a company called Avocado who um, are in Auckland and, you know, doing very well. So it, it was, it could have been done, but I walked away from it and I'm glad I did. And in terms of the cosmetics, mm. uh, cosmetics is such an interesting area for people with a science background mm. because a lot of the kind of um, the new interesting stuff in cosmetics has a great grounding in science. But a lot of the the uh, the, the mainstream cosmetic products out there are making you know interesting claims about things that are in at absolutely statistically insignificant oh, amounts inside the actual product. Well, also if it if it has the effect that they are claiming that it does, then it would be a medicine, it would be prescription only. Mm. And so I kind of don't understand how they how they managed to get away with it from an advertising standards perspective. Um, and I used to get in trouble at training for pointing out glaring inaccuracies in, in, their, um, in their material that they were asking us mm. to spout to unsuspecting consumers. Uh, and I, yeah. Yeah, although I, I love the, the line where they say, this contains... Ingredients X. Ingredient X has been shown to do this. And you're like, yeah, but it's in it one part per thousand. Mm -mm. Like, it's not doing anything in there, though. Mm. Or you're selling a face cream for $150 and its active ingredient is almond oil, which is $30 for half a litre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great, eh? And whenever anyone gets into making their own kind of cosmetics, they're like, what these are these are all the same ingredients yeah. and it cost me about three dollars and I paid eighty dollars for the last Which I ended stuff. up doing. I started a cosmetics brand um, sort of accidentally because I had a really sensitive skin and, and um, I made my own moisturizer and people started asking for it and then it got out of control. Like I couldn't I couldn't um, keep doing it as well as filmmaking and as well as Humblebee. Uh, but that was a, a little another another business. Yeah, maybe one on the back. And so you're, you're sitting there, you're working in film, you, you picked up the science journal and you're reading, as, as one does on their evenings, mm -hmm. an article about native bee mm. uh, nest making secretion properties. Well, <laughs> it, it, the reason it caught my eye was that like a lot of people, I thought there were two, two bees, a bumblebee and a honeybee. And this bee looked bizarre and it was it lived by itself uh, and not in a hive. And then when – and the entomologist who had written the article had, a, had a, a kind of a whimsy throughout this academic kind of writing of this would make quite a good bioplastic or this could – it's behaving like a, like a plastic. And that was the thing that made me go, I wonder if any material scientists and not just insect scientists are looking at this material and, and could I be the one to bring those – bring this to the attention of material scientists. What was it about the material that made it um, seem a good candidate to be a bioplastic? It was literally that line. Um, like, no, or what about the material, sorry? Like what, what, what could it do that made it seem to be like a bioplastic? Uh, well, it was the lining of a nest. Uh, and so it was incubating the, the larvae of the, of the bee uh, and it was protecting it from the outside world. So it was water resistant. And that was the thing that made me think it could be a good, a good bioplastic. How interesting. Um, and, and so someone uh, raised that idea. And then what are your next steps from, because I'm sure like, you know, lots of people every day must go, oh, that's interesting mm. and just never follow anything up. And then what what did you do to make that uh, happen? And what, what was it about that idea that was something that you wanted to follow? Well, I'm kind of a research geek. So I just went down a rabbit hole of literature on these species and what kind of work had been done to to characterize the properties of the material. And some of the stuff was astonishing. Like they boiled it in 100 degrees hydrochloric acid overnight and it didn't degrade. And yet it's bioavailable and you know safe for the inc to incubate um, growing bees. And that was pretty astonishing. 
And so the more I learned about it, the more I thought this this is really quite magical. And I you know I studied biology at, at university and and biomimicry the 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 design concept of looking to nature to to solve industrial problems or learning from nature and was really just made so much sense to me. Um, and so as I learned more and more about it, I just thought I've got to get hold of this. I've got to get hold of some of it and do some more more research on it. And so I applied for funding through Grow Wellington's then um, Bright Ideas Challenge and was successful in getting a couple of grand for a market analysis um, grant. And, and they concluded, like I had, that this was a, a market problem um, that, you know, plastic was, as we all know now, a, a, a huge issue and causing all sorts of um, pollution problems. And the the plastics that have this type of these type of properties, so the um, the flame retardancy the, and the water water repellency, indestructible are, ones, yeah, are just super super toxic mm. um, and bioaccumulate and cause all sorts of um, endocrine and um, uh, tumor issues um, in 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 humans and in indeed every kind of animal that they come across and last forever. They last for an extraordinary amount of time. The yeah. kind of the tougher they are, the longer they last, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. They're 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 kind of organically inert, which means you know they're very stable, but they stick around. Yeah. And what about the properties of you know? I I haven't um seen kind of bee nests as uh you know lasting forever or accumulating or causing a landfill mm. issue. Does that biodegrade down? Is that one of the natures of that substance? Well, I'm glad you used that that word biodegrade because it's one that kind of annoys me because biodegrade really doesn't have a meaning. It can, it can um, mean it just breaks down into smaller parts. And for me, we've got to move away from biodegradable and bi- and move towards bioavailable. So nature doesn't make waste. It makes nutrients for other uh, organisms within an ecosystem. And that is where we've got to move to. Uh, and this is clearly bioavailable because Otherwise, you would see a lot of it everywhere and it would be sticking around. And that idea of biodegradable, I love it too when I see it on a plastic bag. I'm like, yes, but, you know, in a millennia. (laughs) Exactly. Where's your timescale on this? Yeah. Well done. (laughs) Like, the earth is biodegradable given long enough. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Cool. And so you you got the market um, scan that said, Mm. yep, there's a problem here. And then how does one, because, you know, as you mentioned, you thought there were only a couple of bees. And um, I read a, a fan, there was a fantastic story written about your business by a person named Nikki McDonald, mm. um, which people can find on Stuff if they're reading. And it, and it tells kind of like a an Indiana Jones kind of story of um, discovery of trying to track down these bees. So, like, where does one find a native bee? And, you know, maybe not even New Zealand. With difficulty, yeah. with great difficulty, there's because they're solitary. Uh, you can't find their hive. Uh, you have to find them when they're foraging, and they forage because they um, they wear their skeleton on the outside. Uh, they're they're sensitive to um, you know fluctuations in temperature, so they only forage when the nectar or the things that they're foraging on are the right temperature. And so you go in the morning and you go in the evening and you have to go to the right plant. And then, you're st- you know, that plant is also being fed on by a thousand other insects and you're finding, you're trying to find your species and you're trying to find the female of your species. So it's, it's, it's a biological needle in a haystack. But to find the material itself, I basically researched who was involved in, in, in native bee work in both in New Zealand and in Australia and just cold called everyone 
and said, will you help me? And met, met this guy called Chris Fuller. Um, well, called this guy called Chris Fuller, and he has become a you know a long time collaborator with with Humblebee and supplying the biological materials. Um, and he sent you know the the nesting material over, which we had analysed, um, and which you know told us that this was worth pursuing. But it also told us that this material was so robust that we needed to actually go and get the bees themselves in order to figure out how they were making it. So I flew over and met Chris for the first time. We'd been, you know, collaborating for a couple of years at this point and, and went and stayed with him and just spent a couple of weeks in the bush catching individually and keeping alive these bees and they're tiny. Like one of them drowned in a droplet of a droplet of sugar water because so they're they, so small. Are they kind of like more towards, if you're thinking of the scale of things, more towards a fruit fly than a mm. bumblebee absolutely yeah right. yeah they're tiny and and what do they what do they look do they do they look like a sand fly or a fruit fly when when they're like when you spot them what do they look like i think they're quite elegant they're long and, and black and uh slender and they've got yellow markings on them and yeah they're, they're, they're quite pretty and like smaller than a house fly or probably a little bit longer but a lot thinner right yeah and they're they're there's a number of species in New Zealand and they're well spread around New Zealand, but because they don't live in a hive, you might not have noticed them. Yeah, exactly. And you, they don't look like a tr- the way that we're taught about what a bee look, looks like. We've got this you know, monocultural idea of, of species, you know, an orange is this and a honeybee is that or a bee is, is that. And um, we forget to look and see that there is this abundance of diversity around us. And do they... Um do they sting? Do they uh, have queens? Do they feed on certain kind of, you know, native um, flora as opposed to what, you know, other bees may do? What, where, where would you find them? Great question. They, well, the, the New Zealand native bees feed on native um, uh, plants. And one thing that I would, you know, love to highlight to people is that pollinators and plants co-evolve and so our native pollinators our native bees our native moths um, without them we don't have the plants that they pollinate and so we you know we, we've got to be really careful um, about habitat loss and, um, and 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 insecticide spraying and, and whatnot because if we lose if we lose one we will lose the other and you'll fi- so you'll find them on Pahutakawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find them on flax. They do this very cute thing where they will, on on the curvature of a flax leaf, they will get um, some nectar and they will concentrate it on the curvature. So they use the, the curvature of the flax leaf, kind of like a magnifying glass, to concentrate the nectar before they store it in their nest. That's so cool. Mm. And, and like I remember a couple of years ago when um, there was a series of um, plantings done o- across the motorway system mm. because the motorways had cut this kind of like line through Auckland and then the the native birds hadn't had their normal kind of like nesting paths and mm. so it was like well we need to connect up uh we need we need to make little islands where um native birds can feed and now if you're ever sitting to get onto a motorway on-ramp and you see some flax to your right you're very likely to see um a, a, a tui and in, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, alongside the motorway which is quite a lovely experience and yeah. just didn't exist before and I guess you've got that deeper relationship to to the native uh, wildlife now. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, one of the reasons I studied biology was that uh, I was the outdoor kid, um, mud pies and um, exploration and experiments on skinks and stuff like that. Um, 
I love the biological world and I think it is full of inspiration and um, and ideas and, and chemistry that we should be we should be looking at uh, in terms of solving some of the problems that we've created for ourselves. And so you got the first secretions, right? And they were so robust, which mm. I suppose was good news. You're mm. like, wow, this really is tough, but mm. so robust you couldn't maybe do anything with. And and so what what was getting the bees allowing you to then do once you got them in the in the wild and kept them alive and brought them back? So I kept them alive, couldn't bring them back, had to dissect them over there. So I flew an entomologist from uh, New Zealand to Queensland. Uh, I nearly lost all of the bees on a train because I put the box of bees on the train and then I went to get my stuff and then the doors started closing and I had to kind of hurl myself um, into the closing doors and spilt my coffee all over them and um, it was a nightmare. But got there in the end and... They, we dissected them out and what it did was allow us to, to see the precursors of the material. Um, and once, once you've got that, then you know how they're interrelating and, and why they give the properties they do. And we were able to figure out, well, my chemists were able to figure out a way to manufacture synthetically the precursors so we can make a synthetic version of the, of the material. And that's kind of our minimum viable product. That's, uh, you know, the prototype. Um, that, that we're working towards um, in the next kind of six months. Wow. And so how have you gone about, so you started with the idea with a little bit of kind of seed funding from mm. Grow Wellington. And mm. then, you know, at each stage, what have you had to kind of go out and um, do? Have you had to kind of like make make the, the plan for the next few months and then get a new funding round? And is that kind of the process you're in at the moment? Well, at one, po- at one point I had to make the decision to put my house deposit money into the idea. So that was a hard one. It was like, how much do you want to know if this is worthwhile? Um, And I sat with that for a a month or two and eventually was like, this is going to bug me for the rest of my life if I don't answer this question. And so, yeah, drained the bank account paid paid the the researchers to um to analyze the material um and like you know I'm really glad I did because uh it was very promising the the results from that and after I had those results and after I had a research partner um in Wellington the Ferry Institute who gave me costing around the the next stage of research I was able to go and get um get funding from uh, early stage um VCs uh and angels and, and that sort of thing so you there's a kind of a domino effect and and it's really hard when you've never done it before because you don't know what part of the process you have to do before the next bit will fall into place and it's this kind of, you're doing a jigsaw puzzle blind essentially and um, it's, you know, it takes a long time and you're and there's a lot of mistakes and you, you try and go down an avenue and you realise you're halfway down the road that actually you, you you have to do all this other stuff before you can even even do that. Were there any moments in the back blocks of Queensland at six in the morning chasing a tiny bee that mm. you can't find that you thought, am I, am I bananas? What did I put my house deposit into? What am I doing? Yes, definitely. Uh, particularly when we didn't, I I'd, I'd paid for this this uh, entomologist to fly over, and, and I knew he was coming. Uh, and we didn't have any. He was coming in three days, and we didn't have three or four days, and we didn't have enough of the species that we were after to really warrant a dissection and an analysis because you they're so small, and you don't really know how much of you you know the stuff you're after is is inside each one. And so you have no idea whether or not the, sens- the sensitivity of the equipment that are going to be analysing it is even going to be able to pick it up because it's so such a small amount. And so I knew we had to get more of the, of the specimens. 
and I just was it was nerve wracking. And then a couple of them died, and um, yeah. And at the and at the end, as I was kind of getting on the train, Chris said to me, "He's like, you know what? I didn't think you were going to be able to do this." <laughs> and I was like, "Really glad you didn't tell me that early on." He's like, "But yeah." Well, and so now at the stage that you're at, you've got the um, the precursor ingredients worked mm-hmm. out and a kind of idea about how you turn that into a, a thing. How different is it than the bioplastics that exist or the materials that go into it? Like, um, are you in a kind of like? totally different territory or are you in a um you know a better version of understood things good question well bioplastics again is is one of those strange phrases that that covers a lot of uh, a lot of things so a lot of bioplastics are made from plants and but they're they're the kind of molecularly identical to to their petrochemical counterparts mm. so the the sourcing of the of the raw ingredients is you know, arguably a bit better, uh, but the actual end product is as durable, uh, as problematic as the stuff we already have. Uh, so, bio. I mean, it says a bit, a wee bit of a greenwash. This chemistry is 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 different in that this is a naturally occurring polyester. This is a naturally occurring plastic that we know degrades because it doesn't ex- it hasn't bioaccumulated in the world in the same way that um, that uh, petrochemical plastics have. Uh, so it's yeah, it is a new field of chemistry um, in, the, in the plastics front, and that's partly why um, my chemist is so excited about it, and why and why I think it's so worth pursuing. That, that is so interesting because plastic is actually um, it, it, it's a term to describe the way that it acts rather than the constituent substance. So when people are like, "I'm not plastic," it's like, well, um, actually, even if you are made from plants, you're still it's still plastic. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a collective noun, plastic. It's like religion or sports, and there's a lot of nuance and in, in chemistry in within that. And what are the next steps from here? How, like in a in a kind of dream state, what do you what do you see the applications of the product, and how would you commercialize it? And what's the next move? In a in a dream state, uh, we we're aiming for the textiles sector first. Uh, because of its water repellency and flame retardancy properties, uh, I'd love it to be in, in medical device uh, technologies in um, the drug delivery space. I'd love it to be in construction. Uh, I'd love it to be a fabric because at the moment you're, the idea of it being a, uh, a membrane that goes over a polyester um well, it's nice. It means that the, the the coating that is currently being used isn't being used, and that it's a more environmentally friendly coating. But you're kind of polishing a turd on that front because you know polyesters will, will you know, microparticles of that when they're washed and they don't degrade properly, um, uh, or they're not, you know, they're not bioavailable. And so, it being a fabric would be cool. Um, that's a that's a that's quite a big a big deal to create a new a new fabric. And I'd like to see it in construction because of the flame retardancy properties. I think you could create some kind of um, membrane between walls, or um, that would that would make a, a useful product. Lots of things, um, but you with with this stuff is that you've got to make it um, cost effective. And nature has done a whole lot of very very complex chemistry, and in order to replicate it, you've got all of these different steps, and that's expensive to do, and you you lose yield and got all sorts of solvents and, 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 and things in order to create this synthetic version of a naturally occurring plastic 
And that process in itself is not that environmentally friendly. And so I wanted to figure out a way, well, we are going to figure out a way to manufacture it biologically, which in, involves figuring out which portions of, of the genome of the bee code for the precursors of this material and um, write them into a bacteria or a fungi um, and have them produce that, those raw materials through fermentation. And then that chemistry, that complicated chemistry is being done for you and you don't have to do it in a lab using all of these solvents and, 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 and losing yield. And it's just, it makes far more sense and I think it's kind of the future of manufacturing and so we're going we're gonna to try and do it that way. Is there a lot of that going on at the moment? Not in New Zealand, but overseas, yes. It, it is a bit of a, the synthetic biology and new materials revolution is very much underway. Mm. It's an exciting space. It sounds tremendously exciting. And having been through the process up to this stage so far, what do you wish you'd known earlier? Just how long it would take. Um, Mentally preparing for the journey um, would have been useful. I mean, people say it's a roller coaster. You know, the highs are really high and the lows are really low, and you don't, and and you you can deal with that. But it's it's the transition between the two and the frequency of that transition that really takes its toll. I think that if you didn't have um, mental health issues before you started a business, then it would it would definitely um, you know it certainly doesn't help. And that the the ta- how taxing it has been. Uh, that journey yeah those 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 the highs and lows and, and the peaks and it's kind of addictive um but at the same time you know it's been hard on me and it's been hard on everyone that's been around me because they see me elated as we've you know i you know get back from australia and we found them we found the bees and like yes that the, the analysis was was clear and we know where we're going and then it's like well now i've got a capital raise and it's taken a year and i've run out of money and i'm i'm living on my friends couches and i'm having to pay you know use my savings to pay um, people in the business, uh, and that's grim. Yeah, it's it's a hard it's a hard journey, isn't it? Mm. And what advice do you give to people who are looking to set out on that journey? Um, I recklessly tell people that it's that they will learn the most. It's the it's the experience that will, will that will give them the best education. And if they're there to learn, if they want. Uh, the knowledge, then it is a fast track to that. Uh, and so I recommend people recommend people start a business because you learn so much uh, about about people and about business and about the way that, that the world works. And it just gives you insights that you do not get in an established business. It gives you insights that you certainly don't get in tertiary education. Uh, and even even if if this wasn't even if this didn't happen, it's been the best investment that I've made in, in myself and 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 in my own journey, in my own mind. And how do you, as our last kind of thought, how do you define success? So with everything on the line and some promising kind of things along the way, like what what do you currently think of as success? And, and when, when do you think um, you'd be able to call something a success? For me personally or for the business? For, for both, yeah. Uh, a product and market is a success for me in, in business. Um, personally, it's always been about the mission. It's always been about the impact. Uh, it, 
it started, this whole thing started because I studied reproductive biology and had learned about a class of chemicals that were that disrupted no- normal reproduction. And these are the, these are the chemicals we're using um, in, in uh, high-performance plastics. And I remember asking my professor at the time, you know, when did we stop using these? And she's like, we didn't. We continue to use them and we use more and more of them every year. And that terrified me. Uh, and it should terrify everyone. And so that was the thing that stuck with me, that when I read that article, I think made me go, this is worth pursuing because I knew how much of a problem it was and I knew that regulation would eventually come given the huge amount of scientific evidence that these were, were so problematic to to human health. And so for me, it's a reduction in, um, in, 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 in environmental pollutants. That success for me personally, if... If I if I know that I contributed to that, then then that's success. I can't wait to see that happening. So thank you so much Pleasure. for joining us, Thanks Veronica very much Howard for having Simpson. Me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and if people are interested in finding out more or getting involved in the mission, or um, and if anyone has any experience to to bring to the new field of biomimicry, get in touch. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing and for you for listening. Uh, if you do have any suggestions for the pod, hit us up on Twitter. It's at Simon underscore Pound. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.